Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Mina Razuki and welcome to the Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today we start in the only place we can start and that's Kepa versus Sari in the League Cup Final. We dissect what happened and what this means for both the goalkeeper, the manager and Chelsea Football Club. Elsewhere, we look over the weekend's Premier League action, including an injury-ravaged Manchester United and a disappointing Spurs side. Plus, we talk transfer bans, boring matches and the possible return of Brendan Rodgers. Okay, so we're in the Audio Football Club little studio and it's so hot in here. But I'm pleased to announce that I'm joined by three fantastic pundits and writers and journalists and whatever you are. First one is, of course, JJ Bull. How are you, JJ? I'm good, Mina. How are you? I'm all right. Are you a happy City won last night? I don't support City. <laughs> Why are you obsessed with this? <laughs> I am. I'm so obsessed with this. Sam Dean, who, you know, watched Arsenal, but probably didn't care about it as much as all the other matches. Yeah, it did It did feel very much like third on the agenda yesterday, being at Arsenal. But hey, I've, I've seen all the highlights. I've read all the wonderful match reports, so I'm ready to go. Third important, maybe seventh. Okay, what about you, Matt? <laughs> How yeah, are you, Matt Lord? Uh, a bit distracted. I'm slightly concerned something might happen at Chelsea while I'm in here. So if it does, I shall be removing my headphones and walking out. The pod comes first, Matt. No, it doesn't. Okay. I've come second, and I'm definitely not a pundit. Never, ever describe me as a pundit. <gasps> Jerno? Jerno's fine. <laughs> Some might say scum. That's oh, wow. fine. You prefer that to, to pundit? Yeah. Wow, that's going far, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, let's start off with the biggest topic of uh, of the weekend, obviously, which is uh, <laughs> Manchester City winning the Carabao Cup. Although that kind of seems to be not important because actually the whole conversation is about Kepa Arisa Balaga and his uh, fight with Maurizio Sarri, who's already in a horrible position at Chelsea because everyone is uh, wondering whether he has authority over that dressing room. And Kepa refusing to come off the pitch might have just consolidated the position that Sadi is in. Yes, um, you're quite right. The big news should have been that Man City won the, Car- the first trophy of the year and that actually feels completely insignificant now, um, as was reflected by, I was obviously at Wembley on Sunday and no one really wanted to talk that much to Guardiola, no one wanted to talk that much to City's players, everyone wanted to talk to Sari. everyone wanted to talk to Kepa. 
um, to see what on earth had gone on. I mean, I've never, ever witnessed anything like it. I was actually doing the match ratings yesterday. I didn't know whether to give Kepra a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 because he did enliven what was quite a dreary game. This is why I watch Serie A. There's always drama. I mean, this is just a... Like, I was watching it yesterday and how everyone was getting crazy. I was like, oh my God, this is nothing in Italy. Um, but... It's very Italian because it's a very dull defensive game and then it all blows up into a big drama at the end. So it did feel very Italian. But, I mean, it was it was insane. Um, uh, they're trying to pass it off as a misunderstanding. There clearly was a misunderstanding in that... Kepa didn't want to come off and they wanted to take him off, but his reaction was a, a complete disgrace and you had to feel sorry for Sari. I mean, no one was helping Sari. Uh, his captain, Aspilicueta, didn't do anything. Yeah, what was that by Aspilicueta? It's very odd. I mean, Aspilicueta claims he was he was too far up the pitch, but the incident went on for ages and he just left David Luiz to try and deal with it with, uh, with Kepa. And then Aspilicueta... At the end, when Sari's trying to have a go at Kepa and Rüdiger is getting in between them, Aspilicueta then gets into a row with Sari. At one stage, Sari looked as though he was going to head down the tunnel and disappear out of Wembley. Then he comes back. Then he doesn't get in the huddle before the penalties. I mean, it was just a farcical situation. And I really actually felt sorry for Sari because it just looked like he wasn't part of that management team anymore. It's sort of proven Sari right when he says that, you know, I can't get this group of players behind me I can't motivate them it's sort of for, here, here's the proof you know whether that's his fault I mean it probably is his fault that he, as a manager he should be able to do that but it, what, what everything he said recently critical of, of his players all was sort of evident there in that three or four minutes when Kepa just stood still and I think the Aspilicueta thing is incredible because he he is the leader of that team but clearly he knows Kepa well they're both Spanish and he's clearly taken Kepa's side on that debate but as the captain, you are the leader on the pitch. You have to be the, the the manager's man in that situation. And he pretty much just shrank away from the situation. I thought his interview afterwards saying, oh, well, you know, I can't really comment. I was on the other side of the pitch. I mean, that was a remarkable thing for a captain to say when there's such a clear discord between the players and the manager and you're the guy who has to be the bridge of those the bridge in that situation. It's so weird for Chelsea as well. They've been so used to having such strong captains and characters um, for years and years. I mean, obviously Terry was their captain for years, but other than just... Terry, you had the Drogbas, the Balaks, the Lampards, uh, the Czechs even, and you'd, you'd imagine that all of those players not only would have tried to drag Kepper off the pitch themselves, but they would they would come out and talk about it, they would front up, they would be in that group when they're trying to then refocus for the penalties, and just none of that was going on at all. I mean, actually, what also looked bad is when the penalties were being taken, you could see the Man City bench Mm. And there were sort of the whole backroom staff and all the players who weren't involved in the penalties were stood arm in arm in the touchline in a great big line, looked very together. Chelsea's group were just all over the place. There was Sari at the back of him kind of pacing around, still furious. There were little pockets here, little pockets there. Everyone was just all over the place. And it really symbolised probably what that dressing room and squad and staff is like in comparison to what Cities is like at the moment. But so many of the big personalities, though, that cause problems with new managers over the years, if, particularly in the, you know, the Villas-Boas years, season, you Terry, Lampard, Drogba, Czech, the people you just mentioned there, so many of those guys have gone, and yet it still seems that the Chelsea dressing room is like an unruly, unmanageable place, unmanageable place to be, really. And it seems odd that they're sort of like the infectiousness of 
So that's what the club have created. That, 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 there's still a big difference because what that squad used to do, whereas they used to mobilise against a manager sometimes, they would then kick into managing themselves and they're actually really good at it. I mean, they got to a Champions League final with Avram Grant when he basically didn't manage the football club. They won the Champions League with Di Matteo when he didn't really manage the football club. They could manage themselves. And that would cause problems because they would manage themselves against the manager occasionally. But when they're in this kind of situation, it usually helped them. What they've got now is because Chelsea is a culture that puts all the power into the players, the players still have very little respect, really, for the manager because at the end of the day, there's no consequence for them. But they're not a group who can manage themselves. You see, for me, I've always... uh complained that PSG can't win anything because I always felt that there wasn't enough authority in a management level. And um, and I think that what happens is sometimes the coaches, you can't just leave a coach by himself to deal with huge egos in a dressing room. And, and I do feel that at this moment in time, Sadi, who is a coach rather than a manager, has been left in a position where he just wants to focus on tactics and to play his kind of football. And he's not really being given the kind of help that he's used to with a sporting director, with a president who understand how to help discipline aside. Now, if this is something that would have happened in, in other clubs and other big clubs around the world or around Europe especially, then Kepa would definitely be disciplined. He wouldn't be allowed to come in, perhaps even sold for his behavior. As Piliqueta would also come into question whether or not his role as a captain is actually benefiting the squad or hindering it. So can we blame, who do we blame in this situation? The fact that management has given so much authority to players or not enough support for Sari? Well, it's very difficult because everyone in that Chelsea, everyone in the world knows that Chelsea will just fire their manager if they don't get what they want. And the players know that too. So even if they're the ones at fault, they know it's not going to be them that gets cut or gets dished out. And that sort of fed into that whole thing. When Sari came out at the end, the whole, this whole thing's become massive because no one knows what the precedent is. No one knows what happens next or how, how that happens, how this has been allowed to happen, how come, I mean, was it a bigger thing that really was? Is everyone overreacting? No one really knows. And then Sari comes out afterwards, and uh, I agree with Matt, I felt really sorry for him. And he uh, was like a sad granddad trying to just cover up the mess. You know, they'd broken the shed, but he wasn't going to let the parents know. It's our little secret. Trying to hide um, Kepa from... I mean, why is he trying to hide him? And then he was asked whether he thinks he'll still be in charge. And he just starts laughing. He's like, you have to ask the club. I don't know. I'm the same as I was before. As though he must know how bizarre this looks. But does he know how bizarre this looks? Because then he must have lost all his authority. But did he ever have it in the first place? But I don't understand this because we were critical of Sadi when he threw his players under the bus and said, you know, oh, Hazard's not a leader and so on and so forth. And now we're angry with him because he's protecting his players. No, I'm not angry with him because he's protecting him. He's been forced into that situation. I mean, if he wants to keep his job ultimately, unless he wants to basically quit or get into a situation where he talks himself into possibly not getting any kind of payoff. That was his only his only choice was to do what his he did. His only choice was to do what he did. Otherwise he's he's absolutely finished. Um Can he drop Kepper now then? So no, I don't think he can. The stance that the club have taken, if he's still in charge for Wednesday, which is highly questionable, he can't drop Kepper because Surely he could do a, a quiet kind of management style where you rather than like you're in trouble now, he just doesn't talk to him anymore, doesn't play him. It's that silent kind of he's He can't not play him. him. I mean that they've sided with Kepper already. I mean the 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 talk is he's not going to get disciplined at all. The only way you, you cannot play Kepper is by actually saying he's got an injury. So why have they sided with Kepper already? He's the world's most expensive goalkeeper. 
So? And he's on a six-year, I think he signed a six-year contract. Juventus sold a... He's worth far more money to Chelsea. It would cost them £5 million to sack Sarri this minute. And going into... You've got to understand as well that the backdrop to this is he was on the brink of getting sacked before this game. Monday night, I was there Monday night, we haven't discussed this yet, the fans were singing F Sarri ball for 15, 20 minutes. I mean... That feeds into why the players are reacting like they are as well. I mean, they've heard the whole of Stamford Bridge singing F his style of football. I mean, that everything's against him. And there's no way in a million years Chelsea are going to back a manager who they could sack even today or within the next, certainly this week, over a young goalkeeper on a six-year contract who was the world's most expensive goalkeeper. Whether that's right or wrong or not, we could probably debate for the whole show. Mm. But that's the way it is. The actual okay. incident I thought was interesting because it, um, these things, because they're new and everyone loves a bit of drama in these kind of games, it, you know, it feeds into the bigger part of... Premier League's basically a soap opera, the whole thing is. And everyone loves the drama that goes on and the storylines that are created. So when this happens, um, like I said, no one really knows um, what's going on with it. But when Kipper goes down with his with cramp as a goalkeeper, which has been established as quite weird, so I don't mm. know how you get that when you're standing mostly still for a lot of the game um, when he goes down twice it, why is he going down injured to then the, what's he doing well he said afterwards we'd run a lot so it was also a way of stopping the match I mean, he just said he was faking injury to slow the game down he admitted that quite openly because it was being talked about as a tactical decision some of them were saying oh you know he wanted to bring in Willy Caballero because he understands the team he's very mm. good at penalties others were saying no really I mean obviously Sally came in and said it was a misunderstanding I wanted to take him off because of injury which is it? Well, Sari said himself it wasn't a tactical. So he was asked, did you, did you want to get Caballero on? And yet everyone who's discussing specialist? the issue is discussing it as if it's a tactical decision, well, even though Sadi's come out and said that. It's not, it wasn't a tactical decision. Yeah, so he had cramp until he, he thought he was injured and he didn't, want to, yeah, he, didn't, he didn't want to risk the sense. player. And he really did it twice. twice. I mean, it's, it's yeah. boy cried wolf. Yeah. Keeper cried cramp. Like, he just <laughs> not, it was exactly twice that he did it before he couldn't get him off. And, and he'd missed the last match with a hamstring injury. It's perfectly perfectly sensible for Sari to think, yeah. even if the physios are saying it's not that serious, given he's, la- he's missed the last match with a hamstring injury and he was a doubt for this match, if he's got any sign of any little problem, it's not, it's not stupid for Sari to think, Do you know what, I'm just not going to take the risk. Had he have taken a risk with him and then you find out afterwards he was injured and he couldn't save any of the penalties. You should kill Sarri for that. And he should have saved that penalty from Aguero. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Awful. We, well, let's talk about Manchester City. What did we think of their performance? Everyone is saying this is one down, three to go. I'm unsure as to why, considering their performances midweek for me were also disappointing. Um, but was this the great Manchester City side? And should we applaud Sarri for actually trying to adjust his tactics? I think um, the way Sarri approached this one was... I found it pretty interesting because he completely adapted how we would normally play against them. Play with a false nine with Hazard in the front three, but it was actually more of a four or five one, which we've not really seen from Sari. And they were a lot deeper and they waited patiently because they know that City can eventually pass themselves to death if you just let them keep the ball. Similar to what teams have done to Chelsea all season long, actually. And as the game went on and on and on and on, Man City got more tired because they're obviously working hard on that big Wembley pitch. And then in about 60 minutes, 65 minutes, Chelsea changed their approach to start pushing higher up. And that meant City were tired, so they couldn't press them higher up the pitch as they did in the previous game. So it changed it around. And that kind of caught City almost by surprise because they'd been they'd slowed down. So like, well, this is boring. We're not getting anywhere with this kind of play. And it made it a good spectacle. But I think City 
played as well as they maybe could do. Chelsea are a good team. It's the thing, they've, they got done that 6-0. So mm. It's not like they've got bad players all of a sudden. And I think they did well under the circumstances, but lacked a little bit of that snap. I think they were a bit nervous almost when they started. You know, after Schalke, Pep Guardiola had come out and said, you know, we're not a side that's perhaps ready to win all these things. Would you yeah. agree with that? Or do you think he's being humble? I think he's missing a little bit and pieces here. I think, um, especially having seen him at Bayern Munich, they could really do with a player, everyone could, like Robert Lewandowski, someone up front who can take a ball down and mix it in with the big defenders. Because when they get into those sorts of games against Chelsea, there's nothing to really change it up. And they stick to the game plan. I think it's sensible because they control the game and they can squeeze it. But there's no one who can really just find that that goal with a header to beat someone at the near post with a bit of strength. You think also, that's what's missing? I think that's something that they could really do with because they're very one-dimensional at times. It's a dimension that works. It's a good dimension, but they, uh, they miss that extra little bit. I also think Kevin De Bruyne has not been anywhere near as good yeah. as last season as he has been this one, and he really looks short of something. I think Phil Foden looks more of a spark at the moment when he's come on. Well, this is what I was wondering because I thought Javier Martinez has been spectacular for Bayern recently, and I just thought that's exactly the kind of player that I thought was missing from City. Oh, maybe, yeah. Somebody who can really unleash their creative talent by ensuring a, a defensive, you know, strength and someone tall, big, and uh, strong. There we go. Yeah, that it's, really um, helps. De Bruyne was off, off yesterday, definitely. I mean, his passing was—he kind of turned into some quite nice positions yesterday, and he, he couldn't find his teammate quite a lot. And Bernardo Silva as well was lively, but he couldn't quite find the find the ball. They were just that ball off the whole time. And as JJ said, you kind of felt like they needed something different from the bench, just with with Chelsea sitting so deep and mm. happy to just soak everything up. They've got Aguero yeah. or uh, Jesus, and they're very similar kind of players, which yeah. doesn't really help. I, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty convinced they're going to win the three domestic cups. But I think, it sounds weird to even say this, but I think there are still questions over Pep tactically in the big Champions League games over two legs. We saw at Bayern Munich, he had a few, you know, they got thrashed a few times and it's not since... Three times in a row in the semi-finals. Yeah, exactly. And I think those are questions that he has not really answered since he left Barcelona. And I think that's probably the... Like, I'd love to see them play against someone like Atletico Madrid or even Real Madrid in the knockout hey, stage hey, of the hey, two legs. not out yet. <laughs> not quite, not quite, but uh, they're on the way out. <laughs> but I'd, I'd, I'd love be. to see that. And I think that's probably the... the, the the one lingering question over Pep in his, it, since he left Barcelona and that's the one I think that he probably most needs to answer I think he always overthinks it and tries to adapt too much to the opponent and then tries to come up with this winning plan that will give him something special to control and win the game because otherwise if you've just got these very good players against each other what tends to happen is that the team who gets the bounce of the luck or just is slightly more uh, it, it sounds very stupid to say it's, it's all to do with being fortuitous but if you have two players, see you have two teams lined up in exactly the same shape, four two three one, say, and they both go at each other and they balance it well and they read the game. It's all about who gets the advantage at the right times. So uh, managers like Pep Guardiola and, and others like him will try and find a way to control the game so that the manager has some sort of control and say in the game by finding that weakness or that vulnerability here or there. But I think in the big games, it, it just hasn't worked, especially in the semi-finals. They've been taken apart. I think that one of the Bayern ones, he asked the players what they wanted to do. And I think it's never do it again. That's my always been my issue with him, and it's interesting actually that when Ancelotti did an interview recently, he said for Napoli we want more more cholismo and less sadismo, which is you know like let's let's do more of 
that ability to defend at the back and create balance to allow the attack to actually, when they score the goals, for, for us to keep those goals. Conceding two to Schalke, who are 14th in the Bundesliga, I think tells you a lot. I know, but they were, they, were they, they hit them on the counter-attack a couple of times. They only had about three shots. Schalke game. can't score goals. I know, and they were laughing, all the fans were laughing, but it was... That's the exact kind of game. I just knew City were going to... Like I was saying last week, remember? It's like, I don't... Honestly, I just really see that <laughs> being the exact kind of game where Schalke will take goals off them. And they were lucky to get the win, but also Schalke didn't really offer anything. I know. I know. This it's is so what's funny so interesting. how it happens. And maybe that'll give them a good punt up the backside because that's exactly what they need some of those players when they're in those big games. In terms of teams not scoring goals, uh, Liverpool... That was a somewhat of a depressing game against uh, <laughs> Manchester United. It was a little bit sad because we wanted to see what Solskjaer can do against them, you know. But of course, three injuries in the first half. It was just like, four, a, yeah. God, four, exactly. You felt like the ambulance is going to be called any second now. Um, what do we think? This is a missed opportunity for Liverpool? I don't think it's that bad a result for Liverpool. I know it is a missed opportunity in a sense, but I still don't think a draw at Old Trafford is a bad result. Yeah, um, I agree. Just as I didn't think it was like this disaster when, did Liverpool draw at Arsenal this season? They did, yeah. didn't they? Know, and that yeah. was that was painted as a disaster. I didn't think it was a disaster. Um, the, the injuries just really killed the game a bit, didn't they? I mean, they killed the, the flow of the game in the first half. First half was dreadful. Um, and it meant Man United were only, I mean, they're probably going to play a certain way to an extent anyway, but they're only ever going to play a certain way after all those injuries. Um, so it was a real shame. But Liverpool's front three, something's happened to Liverpool's front three. They're just not quite it's as good pressure. anymore. It's the pressure, isn't it? It's the pressure. I don't know what it is. I mean, Salah's gone right off the boil. Um, he was obviously substituted. And they're just not operate. They're just not operating in tandem. They're just not killing teams at the moment. And it's a massive problem for them because that was obviously their huge weapon. And it, it's not just this game. It's been going on for a while that the front three have just lost something. I see it as a lack of freedom. Sorry, Sam. I see it like a, like a big lack of freedom. And now they feel that real weight feel it coming down them. And you can't play with that free-flowing, always-forward mentality if you are thinking first, you need to make sure that you don't lose this game. If you approach games thinking, we're going to win by four, it's a different mentality you start with to thinking, we've got to make sure we, we don't mess this up now because we're getting really close to the danger part of the season. It was quite interesting watching Klopp as well. I mean, Klopp, for the first time... I thought looked really quite under pressure and looked extremely angry from the off. And then also you've got Salah looking disappointed when he comes off and Henderson. I mean, on another weekend when you haven't got Chelsea just being crazy and being Chelsea, um, I think more would have been made of Henderson when he came off, completely refusing Jurgen Klopp's handshake and just sort of barging past him. I mean, I suspect knowing Henderson slightly from covering England that everything will now be fine and it was a sort of off-the-cuff anger. But there's, there's something a little bit strange going on there. I'm not, con- I'm not convinced it's a completely happy ship, to be quite honest with you. I think it, this sounds odd to say, considering how good they've been for so much of the season, but there's only really been two months, uh, November and December, when they've been playing properly flowing, thrilling, attacking football and the front three have looked great. It's only really been those two months. Mm. For the first few months of the season, they were very sort of defensive and organised and sort of weren't spectacular but were getting the results and that seems to sort of come back again but without the results this time I mean they've they've now drawn four of the last five and you look at it and think the way Klopp sets that team up has changed this season in that they're not quite as high intensity 
nutty pressing as they were before. And obviously, they've not got Coutinho. Obviously, he left halfway through last season, which is different. And Oxlade-Chamberlain not being there. They just seems to be a bit more resolute rather than the heavy metal football that Klopp's famous for. And I wonder whether that's affecting the freedom that you spoke of, JJ, with the players who are not getting the same space to run into and not pressing quite as aggressively as before. And it just seems to have just taken away some of the attacking spark. But obviously the counterpoint is that they're so much more defensively solid so you can't say they're not a better team than they were last season but I think you can say as a whole collectively and I think the stats in today's paper has showed that that the front three is less effective than it was as a whole this season compared to last season so not just massive, the last few weeks massive game for them in midweek because I think that's a tough game Watford going to Anfield Watford are, they'll have had two days more rest they're physical they're big they're a team who's not scared to take on the, the bigger clubs I think Watford's a really difficult test for them in what I would imagine will be quite a... They'll try and get behind them to start with Anfield, but I think it'll be quite a nervy Anfield mm. as well. How I do, do think, think? The, the, the pressure, because of... I mean, their big slogan is, it means more. Liverpool's slogan of this whole kind of t- title campaign and everything is, it means more, which rival fans take the mickey out of. Um, but I think that actually puts a massive pressure on everyone around it when we start to get to the nitty-gritty because there is a feeling that it's kind of, it's not now or never, but it's like they've got to do this. They've, it's their absolute world and they're so determined to do it. And whereas earlier in the season, that feeling was really helping them and Pochettino spoke about every Anfield game was like a party and he was a bit jealous of it because they didn't have their own home and this party and carnival wasn't going on every time they played. But that feeling has now changed into a real pressure cooker and Anfield's just a pressure cooker now and it's, it's whether they can deal with that. Do you think it's uh, also a question of understanding now how to defend against the side in the sense that let's minimise the space that they can run into, let's defend with a low block and then, you know, you saw Bayern just take the sting out of the game and close down the spaces and you saw United do it despite the, the fact that they were a depleted squad. So is it just a case of now we understand how to take these players out of the game and the one player who is very good on the ball in Firmino, obviously not there to do the business. Is that what it is? They don't have players who can really perform unless they have space? I think that's um, part of it. I think teams had Liverpool, uh, sussed out is the wrong word, but the the uh, teams were always sitting on a low block against them and the t- games were quite boring sometimes when they couldn't find a way through. I mean, teams like Burnley managed to get points out of them. I think, especially we saw here, it's like Solskjaer, Solskjaer's tactics were specifically to deal with the way Liverpool played because all their width comes from those two full-backs. Uh, United played Rashford and Lukaku from the start as the wide forwards. He's done it before against Spurs and Arsenal, I think. And um, Rashford and Lukaku sat in the spaces that they were going to leave vacant. So it makes them think about whether it's really worth Milner charging up the pitch or whether it's worth Robertson charging up the pitch because they're going to leave space back there. And then United just flood the midfield. So there's a three which creates a block so that that midfield three of Liverpool can't get the forward passes in and it crushes the space that the, f- the forwards that he want to get into and then as soon as them, like Salah would get the ball and he'd get tackled straight away Manny would get the ball he'd give it away he'd have an awful game uh, and everyone who got the ball in Liverpool in the final third was just getting tight to them straight away and rather than trying to mark them zonally I think what Man United did and a lot of teams have done now are they're going man to man so every man has got a, you know, has to follow a player around so sometimes the shape doesn't look like a real football shape <laughs> it's just a bunch of players going about because they're matching the man to man so they can't actually get time and space to do anything on the ball and then it frustrates them and they can't think and then suddenly they start panicking and nothing really works well it's quite impressive from United to have managed this game and, and a nil-nil draw considering everything that happened to them Solskjaer should get the job 
<laughs> yeah. He's perfect though. He's just like Alex Ferguson. He's that kind of striker that scored heaps of goals but never got all the fame. He seems really nice and he seems quite warm. Um, he's got grey hair early. He, uh, <laughs> you know what? When I saw Mata make that wonderful tackle and then get taken off, and I'm like, wow, people really care. You know, like this isn't something that I saw under Jose Mourinho. In a huge year for rugby, stay ahead of the game with a sports subscription to The Telegraph. You can get a 30 day free trial, after which it's just £1 a week. We have a squad of rugby legends, including Sir Ian McGeekin, Miguel Fonsi, Will Greenwood, alongside me to help to produce the best coverage around. You'll get unlimited access to all our sports coverage, so make sure you're in the know with The Telegraph. To get your no-obligation 30-day free trial, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash rugby sub. Well, if Solskjaer doesn't get the job, then Claude Puel is now uh, available. Claude in, <laughs> yes, get Claude in. That'll, that'll, uh, that'll reinvigorate the uh, the club, I'm sure. Exactly. Leicester were indeed thrashed at home by Crystal Palace, and uh, but they weren't thrashed though, were they? They got let in four goals, but I they had. That's story. definitely a thrashing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I do know what you're talking you know what I mean? about. Yeah. I do know exactly what you're talking about, JJ. So, what do you think? Do you think it's unfair then that he's gone? Uh, yes and no. So mm. I have to sit on the football fence mm. here. So I think what Puel's doing, um, I'd, I'd love to know how much we say he's had in the recruitment of players and what they're planning to do. So Puel has put in loads of young players, 22 years old. They have one of the youngest teams in the entire Premier League and they play the most young players of any team in the league. Young British players as well. Well, yes, quite. And so he's got that going for him. And that's been very good. And they're playing possession football and they're trying to play what you would aesthetically be like nice football. However, I think Leicester needs someone with... Because there's such a disconnect between that manager and the way the, pl- the players and the fans think want their team to play. And Puel seems really lethargic and kind of... It just seems kind of dour and, mm. and boring and methodical and thoughtful. And it seems like a team like that really needs someone who's pumping into them and getting stuck in. Robert Hughes was on the, on the radio yesterday and he was saying how when he was there, Puel just seemed basically like that. He wasn't getting anyone fired up. It was Michael Apton that was getting them fired up and Puel would sort of moped about the place and made decisions but never really got that aggression and passion in. And it looks like Leicester can see that they want someone behind the scenes who is revving up the team. And now there's a Leicester way of playing, <laughs> which does exist now under Ranieri. I think Maybe he'd be a good manager for them now. We've sort <laughs> of reached the stage, and Jeremy Wilson wrote a very good piece about this in today's paper, that the personality and like the magnetism of a manager is such an important thing, not mm. just for the players to buy into, but also the fans and mm-hmm. to an extent the media. And I think, you know, for, for the for the journalists who cover Leicester week in, week out, it must have been just the most depressing thing ever because Puel is just so utterly boring. And that transmits to the fans. <laughs> and that must transmit to the players too because he has this, he, you can barely hear what he says. You have to sort of crane your neck to hear him. And he just says nothing of any interest at all. And like, it's hard to imagine him going into a training ground or a dressing room and, and really, you know, getting those team, those get, getting those players inspired and motivated to play for him because it doesn't come across like that kind of guy. And I mean, and that might be harsh because being a football manager is far more than just, you know... Charisma. Charisma. But yeah. it clearly is a massive part of the, the job right now. You look at Solskjaer and the way he's invigorated the whole sort of city, really. And you look at Pochettino and his basically 
his success is basically built entirely on charisma. Like I think, it's just, you know, he's just, he's just, you think so? Well, he, he's a personality coach, isn't he? He's a, he's a, he's a coach who gets the best out of his players because they want to do the best for him. He, he's not a tactics guru. He's not a revolutionary guy with you know his systems, and he's not a big transfer money spender. Obviously, they've not spent any for two transfer windows. He's a. I mean, I, I mean. On that note, I've, I've Mourinho's bubble burst and now his charisma's gone. He's lost yeah, that little special exactly. that made him so special. I mean, this sounds... I'm, I'm really wary of saying this because it sounds incredibly sort of sycophantic and I don't want to come across that way. But I, I interviewed Pochettino recently for the Sunday papers, just a few of us, in a very relaxed setting. And it is... Um, Spurs do this sometimes. You're on a sofa rather than a press conference behind a desk and it's just much more relaxed and everything. And honestly, 20 minutes sitting there talking to him and you leave thinking, that guy... If he if he said jump out the window, I absolutely would. Like you just buy into everything he says. Like, I've I've not met anyone in football with such a magnetic, charismatic personality as that. And that is just the complete opposite of really. Because I never would have labelled him as that. I used to think he was just quiet guy who was mm. more about just getting the job done. I never saw him as being this. Like I would say, Pep Guardiola is, is a charismatic coach. I say Klopp is. I wouldn't describe Pochettino as that. So it's interesting oh, no. to know that. I, I, no, he, it was more than anyone I've ever come across in football I was just like absolutely I mean I, I know there's this whole oh media loving media loving for Pochettino I, f- and all I feel like stuff. we need to cue in like but, a romantic song here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, part of the reason there is a media affection towards Pochettino is because he's a warm guy when you speak to him you, you kind of yeah. believe him and he mm. comes across well and this is, this, is, this is sort of you know by the by but it, it's a I think it's a fair point to make in relation to Puel who is so far away from being like that but what I would say about Les and, and frankly Here's, I've got a list here of these are the teams they failed to beat at home in the last year. Swansea, Stoke, Bournemouth, Newcastle, Southampton twice, West Ham twice, Burnley, Cardiff, and Palace. I mean, for the home supporters going to the King Power, that is depressing. Combined with his lack of sort of character, and it's 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 sort of not a good combination. But what I would say is that it's a great job for whoever comes in. It's an amazing job. I think is he Rogers the charismatic would, I, guy? I think he'd be, do a fantastic job there. I really? don't think he'd bring it anywhere near the passion he did. I think he's quite good tactically, and I think he's uh, good at turning a team into one that that sounds stupid because obviously he wants to win. But he's good at turning a team into one that wins. He's got experience of um, of serial winning now, which is quite good. But I think his stock should be for uh, he should be looking for a team going for top six. Is what he should be going at. I think Leicester are too sort of low for him. I just don't think he'd get anywhere. They're not good enough to get in the top six. The best you could possibly get out of them, I would say, is seventh, eighth, or ninth. They're currently sitting in twelfth. They're about 10 points off where they want to be, which is, you know, three wins. Mm, so think, if they beat one of those three, that's him doing a better job. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, Rodgers could probably do it, but I feel like there must be someone who could do something really special with him. He's, um, he's not going to get a top six job, though. So probably what does not, he do? no. I don't <laughs> I mean, from his point, it's, I think Leicester's the best job outside the top six yeah. because you've got a decent squad of older players. You've got some very good young players. You've got um, ownership who will put pressure on you but will spend money and are committed to, whether we think it's realistic or not, trying to break into that top six and trying to win some tro- silverware. So I actually think it's it's the best job outside the top six. Would, and I just don't think Rodgers will realistically get a top six would, job. Would Rodgers not be in the conversation if for Spurs if Pochettino left? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Doubt it. His European record is so bad. At Celtic... It's very hard to judge him, and I think his European record really counts against him. All the other, I mean, JJ will know this far better than me because I pay such a 
small amount of interest to Scottish football. Mm. But it feels like all the, the recent Scot- uh, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Celtic managers would would often get a really good result in Europe. They'd suddenly beat, you know, get a result against Barcelona or beat a Man United or yeah. um, even that terrible Norwegian fella, I think, got a couple of decent European results. On dealer, yeah. Yeah, but Rogers. Um, has been so bad in Europe, so disappointing in Europe. I thought he was bad with Liverpool in Europe when he yeah, was in he charge was, there. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is that he doesn't... And I think that would massively count against him if a Spurs came up. It could well do, and I was just speaking, saying it to Sam as well, but that the idea, I know this is a bit early and it's a bit young, but the Leicester style of football, which probably does exist now, there's a Leicester way since that title winning uh, team is about being compact, counter-attack, full of energy and, and passion and aggression. And Rodgers doesn't have that. He's better suited to a team like Spurs who are more methodical and pragmatic and can play a certain way and keep the ball a bit better. Not to say he couldn't do it, but I think it doesn't feed into what I would think maybe has fed into the fans a little bit now in the in the Ranieri Maybe, world. although what I've always actually thought, which I think will be quite interesting, I've always thought Jamie Vardy's incredibly similar to Suarez. Incredibly similar style oh. of player. in wow. an aggressive run to channels. I'm not saying he's as good yeah. as him, completely different argument. But I think he can be an extremely similar player, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if he tries to use Vardy in the same way he used Suarez at Liverpool. Okay, I do want to ask you guys, do you think Spurs are out of this? Title? Yes. Yes. Or because of their loss? And no, do we I think, think that they Burnley... Ever, I don't think they ever really were in the title race. Right. Yes. And what about Burnley? Do we want to give them plaudits for how well they did? I thought you were going to say they're in the title race. <laughs> <laughs> No, how they've changed the, their, themselves, how they've improved drastically, scoring goals, defensively solid. Since they changed that goalkeeper, they've been yeah. very good. It's <laughs> all Joe Hart's fault. <laughs> and Dwight McNeil coming in. I've Dwight McNeil, yeah, he's been great. Um, what I would say about Spurs, mm-hmm. if they lose to Chelsea this week, which is feasible, they have the North London derby on Saturday and Arsenal play Bournemouth at home, you could feasibly get within six days a nine-point swing between Arsenal and Spurs, and then Arsenal only one point behind Spurs. Do you really think... I'm interested to know, what do you think? Do you think Arsenal can actually win that? Look at their match against Southampton. Fan, was that fantastic? Should they be? Should they stay in top four? Um, can they stay in top four? Because, I mean, defensively, I still have that those question marks. No, well, I think they've got the sixth-best squad in the, in the division, so being in fourth now is punching above their weight. And I think, yeah, you're right, the defensive... Problems are not going to go away until they get better defenders in. They're um, brilliant flat track bullies, though. Mm. They're very good at home. Yeah. Emery's really got this home form cracked. That, that all they need to do now is switch that to away because away from home they're just a different team. And I find that interesting because Emery's got. A, I mean, Emery went, went, once went a whole season with Sevilla without winning a single away game, so he's he's got a very um, he's got a very different view of home and away games, and he, 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 he I think he approaches them differently, which I'm surprised by because Arsenal really should be going to places like let's say, for example, Palace and trying to do their own thing rather than worrying what Palace might do to them. But yeah, I don't see why. I mean, if Spurs lose on Wednesday and Arsenal win against Bournemouth, which they probably will at home, that North London derby becomes suddenly really, really big. And I can't see any reason why Arsenal wouldn't be able to threaten Spurs at Wembley. Well, Cardiff were dreadful and as were Fulham. (laughs) Those two probably look to be Mm. down. But actually, what's really interesting is the Chelsea transfer ban. Mm. Um, Matt, can you explain the reasoning behind the ban? Crikey. My head scrambled with Chelsea. There's so much going on. I know. I just feel like you're the poster child for (laughs) all news Chelsea. Um, It's pretty simple. I mean, they've had a FIFA investigation into the signing of foreign miners going on for the best part of three years. They looked into about 92 cases. 
um, and have decided that about 29 of them um, they've found them guilty on. So they've um, implemented a two-window transfer ban. Chelsea have confirmed they're appealing it. So if you use Atletico and Real Madrid as kind of case studies, one would imagine that the appeal could take the best part of a year. Wow. Um, so, I mean, they'll... Can they win the appeal? They can certainly get it um, kind of cut down to one window, I'd imagine, because I think... Uh, did Real Madrid successfully do that? Atletico, I think, was upheld to two. Yes, Real. But I think Real got it, argued it down. Um, so they'll almost certainly have this summer to trade in, uh, possibly even the following January, but it looks like summer 2020, come what may... Um, they'll have some ban of some sort, whether it's a one-window or part of a two-window. Um, I mean, there'd been taught that they could get a four-window ban, so y- wow. you could say that it's a bit of a result will the Will the managerial situation, and let's say Sarri's not going to be there in the summer, would would that affect how much they spend, who they spend it on? Because obviously, no. for example, they wouldn't have bought Jorginho without Sarri coming in. So no, they wouldn't. But they'll they'll spend people. some money anyway. Um, they'll try and bring some money in. I don't think the amount of money they spend will differ on who the manager is because Chelsea don't operate like that. They they'll, they what they usually do is they have an amount of money they'll spend, and depending on who the manager is, they pretty much give the manager a, one or two of his choices, and then get a, a couple of club choices as well. Well, they have to spend um, more because they need to spend for two seasons worth. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. It's too easy to just say, oh, they'll spend like 400 million because that's two seasons worth. It's, it's pretty unlikely they'll do that because they have to balance the books. Um, can they keep Higuain and, and replace Hazard? They can keep Higuain. I think it makes it even more likely that Hazard will go um, because with the appeal, his contract runs out in 2020. They will almost certainly be serving a ban in 2020 so if they let him run down his contract and go on a free they then wouldn't be able to replace him or bring in a lot of money so I do think that makes it more likely that Hazard will go and that they will use they will still try and get about 100 million for Hazard and use that money very much to fund their trading this summer it'll be a big summer for them but it doesn't have to be a disaster I think there's a stat on Real Madrid that um after their transfer ban, they won a couple of Champions Leagues or something. I mean, if you plan it properly... Yeah. Look, Spurs is doing really well. Exactly. It's, it doesn't have to yeah. be the end of the world. It gives them an opportunity to try and say to hudson Adoy, we'll throw lots of money at you contract-wise and here's the proof you're going to play because we're going to have to play you because we can't bring in any, any players at some stage. So it, it can help. It could be a reset moment for them. It just depends how they approach it. That's it. And since Real Madrid had it, they've change their whole model to try and bring in younger players because they can see maybe it's part of it that they can see that forming a team is actually quite a useful thing because football teams are about winning win trophies rather than individuals even though Ronaldo has obviously won heaps for them. Chelsea have some good players in the youth team that can come through as well. Jade Silva has done okay at left back. I think he's at Bristol City. Yeah, that's yeah. right. He's done quite well. He had a bit of a bad game the other day I saw in the FA Cup but he's been good. Um, Billy Gilmore is a Scottish midfielder who they have who I've seen play in the in the youth Champions League I can't remember the name of it a few times and he looks superb maybe not ready yet it's quite small still Mason Mount's always doing very well at Derby and you've got Hudson O'Doy I mean, so it's a chance for you Reece James Reece well. James on loan at Wigan is the one a lot of people are really excited mm-hmm. about he's been Wigan's player of the season and people I think he won Chelsea's Young Player of the Year award uh, last year before he went out on loan to Wigan 
and he is one they're very, very excited about. So they've got an opportunity there. It's whether they want to take it, whether they want to reset, or whether they want to try and carry on going as they are. I mean, Atletico Madrid dealt with it. They had a two-window ban. There we go. All the top teams around the world have managed it. Speaking of Atletico... Um, this is the chance where I interview myself <laughs> um, in a, a song for Europe. So I'm sure everyone saw Lionel Messi got his 50th hat-trick um, in the in Barcelona's 4-2 win over Sevilla. What's left to say about him? Nothing. He's the best, right? Vo- yes. One of, the, one of them was a very good volley. Mm. I don't, if you look at all his great goals, there's not there aren't many right. volleys in there. So maybe he's... It's a pure so you're, you're now saying he's even getting better, right? Just saying that might be a new uh, a new string to his bow that we've not seen as much as you might expect. Oh, there was a curling shot, there was a volley, there was a chip. Oof, Messi. Still believe Ronaldo is better. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Messi refused to be substituted once, didn't he? Yeah, and do you remember there was that whole ordeal with Pep and whether or not he opened a can of coke in the oh, dressing yeah. room and oh, totally yeah. went against Pep and... Either way, I mean, you, you have to be, you have to have an ego when you're that good. But if we're speaking about egos, actually, um, Carlo Ancelotti did this wonderful interview with uh, Il Napolista. If you have a chance, you have to read it because it just talks about football in general. And he speaks about Gareth Bale. And he says that he sort of blames him for his exit at Real Madrid, saying that it led to an argument with Florentino Perez because he substituted him off because he had a chance to pass the ball to Karim Benzema, who would have scored an open goal from an open goal, but he chose to have the shot himself. So he was so angry because he thought he was so egotistical, he took him off. And Florentino Perez, who considers Gareth Bale a Galactico, was not very happy. Interesting about, you know, when we, they were discussing the difference between, you know, being a guy who's quite selfish and being a guy who just wants to take an extra step to make it a beautiful game. So Bale not really, you know, he also shrugged off his teammates when he scored the winner against Levant. Um, Levante. Sorry, So um, not, not a good day for him. Meanwhile, Bayern Munich, what did we think of them against Liverpool? Not a bad team. Um, they're closing in on Dortmund. Again, Javi Martinez, who was wonderful defensively against Liverpool, was actually the guy who scored the goal against Hertha Berlin. Um, and I say Borussia Dortmund and their young squad are probably feeling the pressure. Sancho on scoring again. That volley he scored was so nice. Oh, wasn't it? He takes it across, the ball drops and he hits across it, he slices it. Have you seen it? Yeah, 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 and, it yeah. and it swerves in the bottom corner. God, he's good. Oh, he's so good. Um, still without Royce, but still winning the games. There's still a three-point gap between the two. Meanwhile, Mbappe has uh, passed 50 league and goals. And 100 training goals. Don't forget that. <laughs> Do we think Mbappe can fulfill his true potential in France? I'll tell you something about France. I know that people always laugh and say, you know, it's not an exciting league. But what you do have is you have a variety of tactics that you face. So you do pick up things, especially if you're Thomas Tuchel and you learn your mistakes. Because I thought it was a masterclass what they did against United. So why wouldn't he fulfill his potential? It's a great place for him to be while he's at the stage he's at. I mean, imagine if he'd have left Monaco and gone straight into Real Madrid with all the chaos there and the pressure that that would have brought with it. I think that being obviously being at Paris Saint-Germain brings a pressure with it, but... It's a pressure he can cope with and it's against opponents that he can cope with. And, you know, he if he did have a little dip, they could dip him out quite easily. But it's a fantastic place for him to be for a couple of years to learn how to play in a big team and deal with expectation without it being the level of pressure of a Real Madrid or even sort of a Man United. Um, and then for him to go from 
one would assume eventually he will go from Paris Saint-Germain to Real Madrid or Barcelona. And I think yeah. that's just a great progression. My only worry about him is that he's growing up in a squad that has Neymar and Dani Alves. And I, I do think this is another team where their player power is quite big. Um, so that worries me about whether or not he'll start learning things that he shouldn't be learning and start... He started banging in the goals since Neymar got injured, hasn't he? So Neymar got injured on the 19th of January and Mbappe has scored 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 goals since then. Cavani's injured as well. They play him more mm. centrally when mm. he's not in the team. He's kind of the leader now and they have to rely on him. I'd, and... ju- I'd just bin Neymar off and just make it all about Mbappe if it was me. <laughs> so you're basically just saying Mbappe's better than Neymar? I think he is a better person to build your team around going forward than Neymar, yes. Ooh, I, I think Neymar. I might agree with that. You're listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. So a lot of Claude Puel's detractors described his football as too boring. With that in mind, what is the most boring game of football you have ever witnessed? Now, while you guys think about that, on uh, Twitter, Connor Wakefield said England versus Algeria in the 2010 World Cup. I don't know. I quite like that one. Andrea said it was the 1994 World Cup final. Hello, I cried in that final. And Rue says every single game between Rafa's Liverpool and Jose's Chelsea. I have seen so many boring games. I've had the live blog, heaps of them as well. I remember I used to get so bored watching Mourinho's Man United were so boring. And I used to hate having to do them. I like that you didn't mention a single Scottish team in this. Oh, but the thing is, <laughs> Scottish games can be nil-nil, but there's always something interesting in there because it's a different game. It's just genuinely fun. Like it's There's a little bits behind the scenes that you know of and it's more accessible. Whereas watching something like... Um, I, this could be a real game, it could not be. But watching something like Everton versus Burnley is watching 22 finely tuned machines just going back and forward like they're on... You know, what do you call like like train lines, tram lines all across the pitch just doing this, that, this, that, this, that and nothing ever happens, there's no creativity there's no, there's no I beauty know, I think to it's it. fun to watch Everton because you know them. they'll concede on a free kick or I don't something. mean now, but I mean oh. it's just in the past, like, there's so many games like that and the Premier League is one of the things that lets it down sure enough, any team could beat anyone but because they're so well matched and the players are all so good it just becomes a a running match with these robots playing against each other, it's mercenaries and it loses its character I don't What know. about you Sam? Uh, my first thought was uh, last season's M23 derby between Brighton and Palace and it was like the big everyone was like hyping it up it was the first ever Premier League match between these two weirdly fierce rivals and there's like loads of excitement there loads of us there and it's all going to be you know it's all going to kick off and it was honestly the most boring nil-nil I can't remember anything about the game and there was nothing to write and it just felt like the biggest damn squib after all the hype yeah probably I would agree with that and Matt I've had too many I can't remember any to be quite honest with you just any Italian football match. <laughs> All Italian football <clears throat> matches. You know what? Yeah, you've had two Italian coaches in Chelsea and it's been drama nonstop, you know? Whether it's William's Instagram when it came to Antonio Conte or Kepa and Sari, we know how to keep things interesting. Have except that 2003 Champions League final. Oh, that was bad. At Old Trafford. Do you remember that? Milan-Juve. Could anything have been more boring? That's all we have time for. Don't worry, Tom Gibbs is back next week. If you'd like to chat to us, contact the podcast, AFC Podcast at telegraph.co.uk. We'll read out the best of what you send us and subscribe to it. Search for Telegraph Audio Football Club. 
Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons. And we'll see you next time. Thanks to you all, JJ, Sam, and of course, Matt Law. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.